Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marianne Tupi. I'm a policy analyst at the Center for, a, a global, um, for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute. In 1980, Zimbabwe was poised to be a success story. The country had independent uh, judiciary. It had a large and sophisticated economy. It had protection of private property rights, free press, uh, and many other institutions and pol uh, institutions that we now associate with, uh, with high economic growth. Today, of course, Zimbabwe is a dictatorship in the midst of an economic meltdown. It has 150,000% inflation, 80% unemployment. Zimbabwean dollar, which used to be stronger than American dollar, now trades at $10 million Zimbabwean dollars to one U.S. dollar. The country is ravaged by AIDS, and concomitantly, it has one of, the few, uh, one of the lowest life expectancies in the world. In expectations of uh, this week's election in Zimbabwe, which will take place on March 29th, I have asked David Coltart, Member of Parliament for the Opposition Movement for Democratic Change, uh, to write a paper, which he did, and uh, which coincides with today's forum, whose release coincides with today's forum, entitled A Dec Decade of Suffering in Zimbabwe, Economic Collapse and Political Repression under Robert Mugabe. David... David's paper outlines the economic and political collapse of Zimbabwe and uh, provides us with some of the reasons for why that happened. Of course, David cannot be with us today because he's canvassing in the upcoming elections. He's standing for Senate. But um, his good friend, Walter Kensteiner, has uh, agreed to come and present his paper to us today. Walter has to uh, run to the airport, so uh, I will introduce him only very briefly. Uh, Walter served three years as Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, and in that capacity he was responsible for U.S. foreign policy in Africa. And today he is with the Scowcroft Group, where he was a founding principal. Please help me welcome Walter Kansteiner. Thank you very much, and um, thank you for, for having me here at the, um, at the Cato Institute. Um, David Coltart is, is indeed a, a good friend and uh, uh, quite a dynamic um, politician as, as well as a humanitarian. And those of you that know David know that uh, he's not only a very successful member of parliament um, coming from a constituency near Bulawayo, um, a constituency that, of course, is probably 98% um, black, and he is the, the white representative from, from, uh, from Bulawayo, and one that is, is truly um, loved and appreciated by his constituents, and hence has been reelected time and time again. <clears throat> David is, um, is first and foremost a, a constitutional lawyer. Uh, he practices law. He cares deeply about how the rules of the game um, are laid out and how it's played. And in that love for the law, uh, he has is, he is very much uh, adopted a, a nonviolent approach um, to life. And um, his, his topic and, and his title is A Decade of Suffering in Zimbabwe. And I would say David Coltart himself is a, a long-suffering soul who cares deeply about his country um, and, and has suffered with it. 
being that constitutional lawyer that, that David is, he, he usually approaches the, the Zimbabwe conflict or the Zimbabwe problem um, very much from a political point of view. Uh, and in this paper, paper he has taken a, a slightly different tact, and I, I hope you all do spend the time to, to read David's um, very good uh, uh, March 24th paper that, um, that you all are releasing today. He looks at it from, from a, an economic and humanitarian point of view first um, and then falls back into that political dynamic that he knows so well and he lives and breathes. But, but I think his, his effort at, at drawing out some of the economics is critical. Today we see a, a country um, in southern Africa that has a life expectancy of 34 years for women 37 years for men. It's the lowest life expectancy in the region. 3,500 deaths per week occur in Zimbabwe. 3,500 deaths per week is the norm, is the average in the country. Now, that is a combination of of high HIV, uh, but malnutrition as well. It's an enormous rate. Um, and, and one that simply is, is not very well reported. One half million people have already died in Zimbabwe uh, from what David describes um, as this decade of suffering that stems back to the political demise that they are in. When you go through David's paper, you, you <clears throat> have to take note and, and fall back on what he calls the core problem, the, quote, the corrupt political elite that has run the country for too long. And that corrupt political elite um, is absolutely determined to hang on to power. So you have all these economic and and humanitarian repercussions, uh, according to David's paper, because you have this absolute determination of this elite to not let go. As Marion, you said, the, uh, the hyperinflation of 150,000% per annum, it's, it's almost from an economics point of view, you can't even, you can't even calculate it. Um, you have a country that had tobacco uh, and wheat as two of its main staples and uh, tobacco being its largest hard currency exporter. Um, that crop is now one-sixth what it was six years ago, one-sixth of what it was. Manufacturing in the country has shrunk uh, by half. Three million Zimbabweans have fled to South Africa. But the the statistic that David quotes that probably rocked me as much as any was that 80% of those that are still in, South, in Zimbabwe that haven't fled to South Africa, 80% of the Zimbabwe people are unemployed, and 80% live below the poverty line. So David's conclusion is that this economy is completely in free fall. Between the hyperinflation, between the lack of employment, uh, between no production, the country is in total economic straits. He then 
addresses the situation of what's up in the neighborhood. Um, as a good friend of mine who's in the room today said, it's a tough neighborhood. Um, and indeed it is. But, but um, you're seeing what David calls paralysis in the neighborhood or even denial. And so the neighbors don't seem to be really helping out here, is his conclusion. And he starts thinking about, well, what are the ways forward to, in fact, get those neighbors to, to become more engaged and to become more helpful? And he does suggest that the international community very much has a role to play. And, and Carol, we look forward to, to hearing from you on, on how the U.S. government might participate in that, that economic and um, international um, pressure that, that could possibly be helpful. David concludes the paper, um, as David always does, on, on somewhat of an optimistic note. Uh, and I think it's, it's driven by simply his, his love and his caring for, for his, his country. Um, and he starts looking at what are the ways forward um, when this nightmare finally does end, what are we, the, the people of Zimbabwe, going to do to pick up the pieces? And he starts laying out three major areas. And again, they, they kind of cross over between that political um, and economic. Um, but these are the focus points that he thinks his political elite and economic elite within his country need to focus on um, once the day comes. First, he firmly believes there has to be constitutional changes, and it goes back to his, his old lawyering um, capabilities and, and sensitivities, but he believes the balance between the legislative and the executive branches are way out of whack, um, and the executive branch has far, far too many powers and prerogatives. So that rebalancing between all three of the branches, the legislative, the judicial, and the executive, must take place. And so he's looking forward to that opportunity to bring about some of those constitutional changes. Second, he feels the general notion of a limited government must be reinstigated within Zimbabwe's political culture. Um, that it has not had limits on its power. And that is at the very core of, of how this, this political elite has, has, has held on so tightly. Um, there have been no checks and balances. Uh, the limits have been very few, if any. And so there has to be this notion of, of a limited government. And thirdly, um, David talks about letting the private sector be the private sector. You've got to let... Um, businesses, be it agribusiness or manufacturing, you've got to let businesses have the space uh, to be economically productive. And in fact, he makes the case that, that that space has been limited in Zimbabwe for a good long time, um, and that has to be, to be reopened. And again, as David's optimism shines through, um, he concludes that if we can get to that point where the Zimbabwean people um, can make these changes or start making these changes, uh, then the country has terrific potential and wonderful hope. 
Um, I think I'll leave it there. Thank you. Uh, and I, there's nothing, there's nothing ruder than a Washingtonian that, that, that speaks and then dashes, but, and I apologize, but, uh, um, scheduling conflicts, uh, have got me going to New York. Before you depart us, I think that we have a few minutes. Uh, maybe you would accept a question or two? Please. Um, before I turn it over to the audience, uh, from speaking to David or uh, from reading the paper, could you divine uh, what does he feel about the elections on Saturday? Where are we heading? Um, as you know, the uh, presidential and parliamentary elections will take place uh, this Saturday. Um, and in fact, there's been some interesting uh, tidbits that have come out in the last few days. Uh, if you notice, the ZANU-PF government has decided that um, some polling regulations need to be changed. Uh, the r rule was always that there could be no law enforcement or police or army within a, a, a hundred meters of, uh, of a polling place. Uh, and in fact, um, just before the weekend, that, that rule was changed. So now that law enforcement or army can in fact be inside the polling place just to, you know, to assist people in, in understanding the ballot, I suppose. <laughs> um, so it, it, it doesn't bode well. Um, and I would say that, that David in a, in a, in a moment of, of candor would um, assume that Mugabe will steal the election um, and that uh, Robert Mugabe will, will continue to be the president. Thank you. Please. Could, could, you, could you perhaps wait for the microphone and give us your name? Uh, Judd Harriet, a documentary filmmaker. Um, why is it that you suppose that the neighbors are so reluctant to put pressure on Mugabe? Is it because they fear a populist experiment in their own ranks? It's a, it's a great question, and, and, um, and one that, that has to be um, doubly asked to the, to the South Africans, specifically, where, where you have so many people, uh, according to David's paper, you know, some three million Zimbabweans now live in South Africa. Um, and does that not put stress and strain on, on, the, on the South African um, infrastructure and capabilities? Um, now, that said, I will, I will have to say that there are many uh, Zimbabweans in South Africa that are extraordinarily well-educated and extremely productive and doing very, very well for themselves. Um, but it's a pity that they aren't in, in Zimbabwe doing well for themselves in Zimbabwe and building up that economy. Uh, but to answer your question, I, I, it, um, it is, it is uh, odd that the neighbors have not um, pulled together in a more coherent fashion. Um, SADC is going in as uh, election monitors. Um, in fact, I think they already have team on the ground or about to be on the ground. Um, so there is some engagement, but it, it, it seems um, tepid at best. Okay, do we have one more? Yes, sir. Uh, just a second. Thank you. I'm Julian Josephson, a science and environmental writer here in town. Am I correct in assuming, um, Dr. Kansteiner, that um, the natural, in the course of all the, these 10 years since uh, Mugabe took over, that the natural as well as the human environment have simply been allowed to, you know, to go and let, let me just put it rather crudely, to blazes in a handbasket? The, certainly, the the economic capability of the country is in a in a in a much less state than it was. Um, infrastructure is, is has in fact uh, decayed significantly. Um, 
on the other hand, the, the, the country is blessed with, with incredible resources, um, natural beauty, uh, and, and hence tourism because of it, it being one. Um, but it's also blessed with, with minerals and metals um, and tremendous agricultural potential. Um, remember, Zimbabwe was the, the single largest exporter of food in the, in the, in the Southern African region for many, many years. Um, and so all of that makes it even more frustrating to see where Zimbabwe is today because it, it does have that potential. The good news is, and I think David Coltart would, would be the first to say it, the good news is um, we still have that potential um, and our country um, can regain its 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 position in in the region and its and its place in the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Walter. Thank you so Appreciate much. Appreciate it. Thanks. <laughs> and and bon voyage. Our next speaker, I'm uh, delighted to say, is Carol Thompson, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for African Affairs, and in that capacity, Ms. Thompson oversees health issues, public diplomacy, and public affairs in, uh, Southern, African, um, in Southern Africa uh, for the Bureau of African Affairs uh, at the United States Department of State. Prior to joining the Department of State, uh, Ms. Thompson served as the director of the Office of National AIDS Policy at the White House. Uh, before that, she was uh, with the Office of the Chief of Staff at the White House and with Department of Health and Human Services, as well as Trade Representative of the United States. Uh, Ms. Thompson, I, I asked Carol to uh, give us a little insight into American uh, policy toward uh, Zimbabwe, and uh, uh, I would particularly like to know what can we expect if, as it is predicted, uh, Mugabe wins, or rather, I should say, steals the elections in, uh, on, on Saturday. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. <clears throat> Good afternoon. Thank you. Um, I'm very happy to be here at Cato Institute today, and thank you very much, Marion, for gathering us all together to discuss this absolutely critical issue. David has provided an important perspective on the tragedy and suffering experienced by the Zimbabwean people. I think we can all agree that the most important work toward restoring Zimbabwe to democracy and economic prosperity will be done by the Zimbabwean people themselves. And David will have an important role to play in that respect. He has outlined some new ideas and the way forward, and I would like to discuss how the United States is helping the Zimbabwean people. In a few days, the Zimbabwean people will go to the polls to elect a president and members of parliament. The United States has stressed the importance of the democratic process and urged all Zimbabweans to exercise their right to vote. We're also concerned that those who qualify be allowed to vote and that their votes be counted fairly. Just one month ago, traveling in Africa, President Bush underscored the importance of restoring human rights and holding free and fair elections in Zimbabwe. We share the concerns of others, both in Zimbabwe and among the international community, about the pre-election environment, including reports of voter confusion and inadequate preparation, failure to provide a sufficient number of polling stations and urban centers, evidence of irregularities associated with registration and inspection of voters' rolls, and concerns that violence, intimidation, and manipulation of food aid will affect the campaign and the election. 
let me give you a few examples. Um, and Walter mentioned a few, but uh, currently the voter registration is at six, approximately 6 million people. That's 300,000 more people than were registered to vote in 2005. 300,000 people were added in two weeks during open registration in February. The approximately 120 uh, member SADC um, election observation team that arrived in Harare last week when they were asked about um, the, the setup for the election and the preparation, uh, they expressed no concern and seemed quite confident um, and optimistic about the status of the election preparation. Um, also, as Walter mentioned, that the uh, statute was uh, issued the week of March 17th. Now the police are allowed in the polling stations, and they are actually required, their presence is required, when election, um, uh, when polling place um, election representatives help illiterate or physically disabled people to vote. So the police have got to be there at this point. Um, there's still no Western journalists that have been accredited to cover the elections. And the final tally of votes will be tabulated at the National Command Center, um, in absence of all other observers. <laughs> we were pleased to see that the, that, um, the Zimbabwe Election Support Net- Network, uh, ZESIN, will be fielding a strong team of election observers. The government of Zimbabwe's decision to permit only friendly countries, the African Union, SADC, Southern African Development Community, to send, to send observers and restrict election monitors from a number of other countries and organizations that could have provided a credible and objective evaluation of the electoral environment and election day voting. Specifically, independent regional bodies, such as the SADC Parliamentary Forum, have a strong track record of thorough and unbiased reporting on elections. The SADC Parliamentary Forum will not be entered, will not be permitted into the country. We strongly believe that this type of unbiased observation is essential to ensuring that the voice of the Zimbabwean people is heard and accurately reported. Nevertheless, our resident diplomats at the U.S. Embassy in Harare, who have been accredited, will do their best to observe voting in the areas they are able to monitor, as well as accredited diplomatic missions, other diplomatic missions. The SADC principles and guidelines outline what governments of member states must do to hold democratic elections and include such critical factors as assuring freedom of association, equal access to state media, equal opportunity to vote, and independence and impartiality of electoral institutions. We strongly urge the SADC member states, as well as the African Union, to hold the government of Zimbabwe accountable by abiding by these important tenets of the organization. For some time now, we've been concerned about the increasing use of state violence against the regime's opponents, including competing political parties and civil society. We've consistently spoken out against the government's brutality and political repression. As Assistant Secretary Fraser noted in her speech on our Zimbabwe policy in December, more than 8,000 incidents of human rights abuses were reported last year. In response to these atrocities, the United States expanded our targeted travel and financial sanctions, and we will continue to do so against those undermining Zimbabwe's return to democracy or those supporting these individuals until the violence and political intimidation stops. 
Meanwhile, the United States continues to provide enormous amounts of humanitarian assistance to the Zimbabwean people. In 2007, we provided over $170 million in food aid, feeding 1.5 million people. We have HIV and AIDS programs on prevention, treatment, and care amounting to over $30 million per year. We continue to help build civil society's capacity to enable the people of Zimbabwe to have a voice in their country's future. And we've been working with like-minded countries throughout the international community to identify and clarify the principles that must be in place for the international community to re-engage with Zimbabwe. In closing, I'd like to reiterate Assistant Secretary Fraser's statement that the United States is prepared to do even more. We're ready to augment substantively our development assistance to a government that makes credible and significant progress toward genuine political and economic reform. We're prepared to assist a government that will put an end to the tragedy described by David Coltart and dedicate itself to serving the people of Zimbabwe. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Thank you very much. I, um, I have now been covering Zimbabwe and writing about Zimbabwe for almost a decade. And uh, I say it um, with – I'm convinced that no other government in the world has done as much in order to further uh, the cause of democracy and human rights and generally freedom in Zimbabwe than, than the United States government. But, of course, as you um, pointed out uh, – the, the neighbors of Zimbabwe, uh, SADC and other African countries, do not seem to be concerned uh, half as much as people across the pond, which brings me uh, to another point, and that is that ultimately um, we cannot care in the United States, in Britain and other parts of the world for Zimbabwe more than Zimbabweans care for Zimbabwe and other Africans care for Zimbabwe. It is their duty to... Um, um, to make sure that uh, the current situation in Zimbabwe uh, changes for the better. But uh, while we wait for that, the humanitarian catastrophe in Zimbabwe is getting uh, continuously worse. And um, it is uh, with that point in mind that I've asked uh, my good friend Richard Tren uh, to come and give us a sense of what is happening on the ground with regard to um, the, uh, the health situation, uh, situation with HIV, AIDS, uh, tuberculosis, and, and, and other um, concerns. Richard Tren is a founder and director of the health policy and advocacy group Africa Fighting Malaria, which has offices both in South Africa and in the United States. AFM is uh, one of the few malaria advocacy groups that advocates for the increased use of indoor spraying of, of insecticides in, mal in malaria control and successfully challenged the WHO and donor agencies to support the limited use of the insect insecticide, and we'll get it right eventually, uh, DDT to control malaria-spreading mosquitoes. Richard is an economist and has researched a, and written widely on the subject of health and development with particular focus on malaria and other communicable diseases. He's also a member of the Free Market Foundation of Southern Africa, and I'm delighted to welcome him back to the Cato Institute. Thank you very much, uh, Marion, and thank you to the Cato Institute for putting this um, event on. Yeah, uh, as Marion said, I'll talk a bit about uh, healthcare and the humanitarian crisis in, in Zimbabwe. Um, last year... Uh, Sebastian Berger, a journalist writing for the UK's Daily Telegraph uh, newspaper, visited Zimbabwe undercover, of course, 
um, because of the restrictions, and interviewed several people. One of them was a, a doctor working one of one of Zimbabwe's main hospitals, who would only speak to him on condition of anonymity. Uh, anyway, this doctor recounted the story of a young girl who uh, had broken her leg. A, a, a rock fell on her leg, and she she broke her leg. Now, ordinarily she would have been operated on and the leg would have been set and she would have been fine. She would have made full recovery. Uh, these are not normal circumstances, however. The hospital had no anesthetics, so no operations could be performed. There were no antibiotics. And the doctor had to clean the wound with tap water. Uh, inevitably, infection set in and then gangrene and the leg had to be amp- amputated. Uh, and this, um, in a 10-year-old girl, in the completely avoidable uh, situation... But I think this uh, is one of a catalogue of horrors uh, that is repeated across the country. Zimbabwe once had a fine public health system. The life expectancy at birth uh, increased in 1980, around the time of transition from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe, from 54.9 years uh, to 63 years in 1988, according to the WHO. Uh, also, according to WHO, the percentage of children immunized for diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus was 75% in 1986, was 80% in 1994, and 81% in 1999. Uh, and this compares very favorably to the uh, average for sub-Saharan Africa. In 99, the average immunization for sub-Saharan Africa was just 48% compared to the 81% in, percent in Zimbabwe. Uh, the improvements generally in primary health care meant that child mortality fell in Zimbabwe by 80% between 1980 and 1988. Unfortunately, any gains uh, in human well-being have now been lost. Uh, as, as Walter already mentioned, life expectancy at, uh, for women is just 34 years and for men is 37 years. Uh, to put it in perspective, average life expectancy worldwide is 66.8 years. So women in Zimbabwe can li- expect to live half uh, the number of years as a, a woman, an average woman wo- in the world. Uh, as with most African countries, uh, sub-Saharan African countries, uh, Zimbabwe has a, a high HIV-AIDS prevalence. Uh, it stands at about 24.6% according to uh, UN, um, UN AIDS. It, it, HIV prevalence does seem to be falling, and I think for, for two reasons. One, there's been such a migration of, of young, sexually active adults out of the country. But another is that uh, with the economic collapse and widespread poverty, uh, there are men are, are sustaining fewer extramarital affairs, people are having less sex in Zimbabwe, uh, and I, I guess spending more time trying to survive and find food. Uh, and there's interesting research showing that, that HIV prevalence is, is, is spreads much faster and is, and is much higher in more dynamic, uh, prosperous economies than in poor, collapsing states. Overall, um, the uh, uh, in, sorry, in, in 2000, the uh, an act of parliament set up the National AIDS Council, which was supposed to coordinate efforts to. Uh, to deal with the HIV-AIDS problem. Uh, By many accounts, it has just become an extra layer of bureaucracy and is horribly corrupt. Uh, And then in 2002, the the Mugabe regime um, declared HIV-AIDS an emergency and made 
available in 2003, $700,000 for uh, treatment, and then $2.3 million in 2004. These are U.S. dollars, not Zimbabwean dollars. Let's be clear <laughs> about that. Uh, uh, this is by no means sufficient and, and, and woefully inadequate to, to deal with the, with the problem. However, some people were, were put on, uh, on antiretroviral therapy. Thousands, however, have had to stop. Uh, many thousands, it's been documented, had the uh, treatment stopped because of the Operation Marambatsvina, the clear out the trash when Mugabe's agents uh, targeted uh, urban dwellings, um, mostly opposition uh, support, areas of opposition um, supporters. Um, the Zimbabwe AIDS uh, network estimates that 800,000 people require uh, antiretroviral therapy, but only around 40,000 are actually receiving it. Now, that was an estimate from last year. With inflation at 150,000%, uh, it's likely that many of those people have had to stop treatment because they simply can't afford it and the government isn't providing it sufficiently. Uh, the, in 2002, the, the government took a decision to issue compulsory licenses to, to produce generic versions of, of AIDS treatment in Zimbabwe. Uh, this, perhaps predictably, has not helped because of the collapse of the whole health system. Um, it matters very little w where you produce your medicines if there's no one there to, to deliver them uh, or pay for them. Uh, tuberculosis rates around the world have been, have been rising, and certainly in most southern, southern African countries, TB uh, is becoming an increasing problem, and especially drug-resistant TB. But TB has been rising much faster in Zimbabwe than, than anywhere else. Uh, TB, um, for, for all of Africa, TB prevalence rose by 60% between 1990 and 2005 to, now, uh, to 511 cases per 100,000. Over the same period, TB prevalence in Zimbabwe increased by 148% to 631 uh, cases per 100,000. And over that period, TB mortality increased by 189%. Uh, the, the failure to, to treat and control TB is a, is a stark reminder of the, the problem of understaffing and the collapse of the uh, health system. Health professionals have been leaving the country in droves, many going to South Africa, the U.S., Canada, Britain, uh, all over the world. Uh, the part of the, 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 a report last year by the Catholic Health Association of Southern Africa described some of the problem in, in hospitals and clinics as follows. They say that there's very little electricity supply, very little water, lack of medicines, lack of staff, lack of some basics, such as bed linen, gloves, and syringes. Under these conditions, it's understandable that running any kind of direct observed treatment for TB is, is impossible. The, for many years, the, the Zimbabwean Association of Doctors for Human Rights has been warning of a collapse of the health uh, system, and last year they said it, it has collapsed. There is no longer a health system. Uh, and in line with that, the International Committee of the Red Cross treats Zimbabwe as a war situation, uh, as far as malaria is concerned, Zimbabwe once had a very fine malaria control program. Uh, not only did they control the disease very well, they produced much uh, very relevant and important research uh, for the malaria community at large. Much of this has been lost. Malaria control is patchy at best. Uh, they, 
indoor spraying with insecticides was once the mainstay of the program, there's now very little fuel for people to actually get out to the rural areas to do the spraying. South Africa has been helping a little bit in providing insecticides uh, to, 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 to do spraying. And this is perhaps one of the few instances where the South African government has actually provided some sort of assistance to ordinary Zimbabweans, even though it's uh, inadequate and, and, and somewhat piecemeal, uh, that, that, that particular response. And, of course, it was a self-interested response because uh, in South Africa's Limpopo province that borders Zimbabwe, malaria cases have been rising much faster than in the other uh, two malarial uh, provinces as so many thousands of Zimbabweans leave uh, the country every week and enter um, South Africa. And if we're seeing an increase in malaria cases, one can only guess at the, the impact of, uh, t- on TB and HIV prevalence in the, surrounding area, in the surrounding countries. And, of course, aside from these three major diseases, there's uh, heart disease and cancer and diabetes and so on that, that, uh, that are not being treated. Uh, malnutrition has increased alarmingly in uh, Zimbabwe, as, as, as David describes and as Walter mentioned. And... The last year, the Harare City Council's uh, Department of Health reported a 46% increase in Kwashiorkor cases, and this in what was once the breadbasket of, of Southern Africa. Uh, the, the UN uh, uh, news agency, IRIN, reported on a complete lack of food in, in, in hospitals and quoted hospital workers saying that they were worried that some patients would starve to death, those patients that didn't have family bringing them food. Um, I mean, you can carry on. And the uh, reports that bodies lie unclaimed in mortuaries because families don't have the money or fuel to, to claim those bodies and take them to cemeteries. Uh, horrific. More horrific is the fact that the mortuaries have no electricity to run fridges uh, and no fuel to run generators and that those bodies simply decay uh, in mortuaries. It's a horrible end for that body, but perhaps they're better off than lying in a hospital with no medicines or painkillers and you're still alive. At least they don't suffer. Um, the, we, we have to recognize that the, uh, this situation is entirely man-made. This is a product of the Mugabe regime. Uh, withholding food and medical uh, attention is, on political basis is, is well-documented. Uh, and remember, in 2005, State Security Minister Didimus Matassa declared that the country would be better off if half the people died, leaving only those that support Mugabe. And I had a, I had a, a small glimpse into the, uh, the politicization of healthcare on a trip to Zimbabwe not long before the uh, 2005 parliamentary elections. And I'd been invited up there by the Minister of, Ministry of Health to attend uh, a malaria awareness rally and I went really because I was very curious to see uh, what things were like. And the, the government chose to hold this event in, uh, near Kariba in what was an opposition stronghold. Uh, so it was curious that they chose that just you know, not long before an election. And, of course, this was paid for by, uh, out of taxpayer funding. But the event began with one ZANU-PF official after another uh, chanting you know, forward with Mugabe, pro-Mugabe chants. And then the Minister of Health, David Pariranyatwa, uh, stood up and before he began a, a, a rather tedious speech, started chanting, down with mosquitoes, down with the MDC, over and over again. I mean, 
it's utterly pathetic and it would be laughable if, if it wasn't clear the kind of uh, the, the, the menace behind those words and the, the kind of uh, brutality and, uh, that, that accompanies those kinds of, of, of chants. Uh, it was clear that the people there that were attending the event weren't, um, weren't very supportive until he said something in Shauna to them, which I didn't understand, and suddenly they reluctantly started putting up their, their fists. It was really quite a, uh, a nasty experience, this whole event. Um, but what, what to do? I mean, certainly there is a, a, humanitar- a huge humanitarian crisis in, in Zimbabwe. And a, 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 if and when there is a change in power, there's a, there's a strong need for a swift and comprehensive humanitarian relief program. Uh, much of that will depend, I think, on Zimbabwe's neighbors uh, in cooperating, and they'll have to admit that there is actually a problem. Uh, re- but in the long term, rebuilding the health system will take uh, a lot longer, of course, and be much more complicated. Um, in June 2007, uh, Minister of Health Pariyunatwa uh, responded to reports about the collapse in the healthcare system by saying, that but by calling on the private sector to to do more and he and he said specifically and I quote that it was a question of social responsibility for them to deal with this and I guess that shows how Orwellian uh, Zimbabwe has become that the government can destroy the healthcare system destroy the private sector and then expect the private sector to take responsibility uh, for what they've done um, but perhaps Pariyunatwa is correct in that uh, the state can't respond. Uh, and so this does, as we're in the Cato Institute, present some interesting opportunities to explore uh, and, and, and rebuild the private sector and use the private sector to provide some of those uh, public health uh, services. Uh, you know, there are interesting ideas of working on vouchers and, and, and grants to for ordinary people to go to and use the private sector. Um, but I think that we, we need to be wary about uh, assuming that we can simply rebuild what, wa- what was once a functioning public health sector. Certainly, uh, I think it's unrealistic to expect all those Zimbabwean the, uh, health professionals from Zimbabwe that have left to come back to the public health sector where conditions and pay are far worse than in the, in the private sector. Um, I... I personally feel that any post-Mugabe government should be quite, um, well, I don't know if I should say sceptical, but, but wary of, of those people that come to help them uh, in what they do, and that they should have a very clear idea of what they want and what is right for Zimbabwe. Uh, towards the end of May 2002, uh, the uh, Nobel Prize-winning organization Médecins Sans Frontières, the Third World Network, which is a sort of leftist development group, uh, the Philadelphia-based Health Gap, Ralph Nader's group, the Consumer Project on Technology, all supported the Mugabe regime in glowing terms for issuing that compulsory license to pr- produce generic antiretrovirals. Uh, and they did this after the two fraudulent and violent elections, after uh, the violent land reform process. They did this after was w- the, the human rights abuses were very well documented. Um, and it was, it was clear that this was purely a political move on their part. That I don't know if these, these, these groups are all embarrassed by their, 
uh, or sorry for the support that they gave then to the Mugabe government. Certainly no one has benefited from those compulsory licenses. Um, but my point is that organizations and individuals the world over will try to use Zimbabwe uh, to further their own uh, aims, whatever a particular policy agenda they have. Uh, and as someone who is a skeptic of, of donor aid generally, I mean, I would just hate to see something like the Swedish support for Tanzanians' development in the 1960s, which basically destroyed that economy. Um, so my, my, my point is just that uh, any post-Mugabe government must have a very clear idea of what they want and what's right for them, and rebuilding a, uh, a, a health system that works for them, that is uh, based on evidence, and that um, where policies will change based on what is or isn't working. Um, I'll, I'll stop there, now, but I'll, I'll end with a, a short excerpt from a book uh, that I read recently by Peter Godwin, who many of you will know, called um, the, uh, When a Crocodile Eats the Sun. And I think it captures very well life in Zimbabwe. And this, this book, and I'd recommend it, is, is a very um, a, a, a personal account of Peter Godwin's family and um, a sort of family history. Uh, and it describes his parents' life in Zimbabwe and the lives of, of many ordinary Zimbabweans. And Zimbabwe's essentially become a barter economy uh, with inflation at those levels. And he described a fight between two men uh, uh, over, a, over a bicycle tire. One had used a bicycle tire as a down payment on a job to paint a house. Anyway, Godwin writes, this is what has become, this, this is what this vile president has done to us, made scavengers of us all and stripped these grown men of their dignity as they fight over a worn bike tire reduced us all to desperados and thieves, made us small and bleak and old and tired, made us lose our love of life itself, split our families, and left my parents alone, impoverished, alone, afraid. It's a depressing note to end on. Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Let's uh, open it up to uh, Q&A. Um, if you please... Um, State your name and uh, keep the questions in the form of a question. Mr. Bota. Just wait for the mic, uh, wait for the mic to reach you. Uh, Donna Botha, born in South Africa, American citizen. Uh, would somebody care to comment about the actions of Ian Smith in 1960? My history says that the British had a plan for an orderly transition to independence, and he said unilateral declaration of independence. And that led directly to the Civil War starting in 1980. Is that, how much is that responsible for Mugabe's coming to power and the uh, problems following it? David Coulthard, in his, uh, in his, uh, in his paper, talks about uh, the political repression in the last years of the white minority rule, which uh, then overgrew into the Mugabe era. In other words, his point um, as a constitutional scholar is that Mugabe, after coming to power, assumed many of the powers which Ian Smith used under the emergency rule, including his ability to suppress freedom of the press, and um, uh, th that had served him very well. So um, it is, uh, in David's opinion, correct to search for the roots of uh, Mugabe's dictatorial tendencies in uh, the exceptionally well-developed executive power 
that he inherited from the white minority. Um, but th- there is a person here I, I actually want to call upon, and that's uh, Jamie Kirchig, who is an editor with uh, the New Republican, who's written a wonderful piece some months ago about the failure of the Western democracies to support the internal settlement in 1979. Jamie, do you, do you want to take a minute or two just to talk about that? And uh, Over there. Put your hand. Um, unless you don't want to. Okay, carry on. Um, I, th- I think you're right about that, that um, there was an opportunity for a democratic transition in 1979, 1980 that was, uh, for a s- variety of reasons, um, not acted upon because of the Carter administration and various policies that they were pursuing in, throughout the continent. Um, but I do think you're right, Marion, that what's lost in, that, in, that, in all this debate about Robert Mugabe is where he came from. And, you know, Ian Smith really did, did set the groundwork for dictatorship. Um, and that Mugabe, while in many degrees, is certainly worse than Ian Smith. Um, it really wasn't a surprise, I would say, seeing what preceded him. Yeah. Of course, that doesn't excuse it. It just uh, explains no. that the, uh, the constitutional settlement in 1980 um, was, was a deeply flawed one. Yes, sir, in the back. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Cato Institute, for organizing this um, <clears throat> forum. Uh, my, name is, my name is Philip Pasirai. Um, I'm a Zimbabwean. Um, I'm currently affiliated with the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs. Um, <clears throat> My question is directed to Madame Thompson. Um, in December last year, the U.S. Assistant Secretary for State, Madame Fraser, said that they are going to take some specific steps in terms of reining in on the regime in Harare. Um, one of the recommendations or the um, <clears throat> one of the pointers she highlighted is that. Um, the United States government is going to look at uh, those that are domiciled in the United States who are propping up the regime, including the sons and daughters, the kin and kithi of members of the ruling elite in Zimbabwe. Um, it's unprecedented. Such action has been taken elsewhere. I can just refresh your memories by saying that the Australian government last year deported sons and daughters of members of the ruling elite because that they had killed their fathers and mothers, had killed the economy, had destroyed the education sector, had destroyed the health system in, in, in Zimbabwe, and they thought that there is no need for them to send their children outside the country but also to start back home and also experience the difficulties that the majority of people are, um, are suffering. Okay. Um, I, I really don't know what specific steps, because it's clear that the election is predetermined. It's clear that come Saturday, Mugabe is going to announce himself as the winner, uh, despite uh, um, all the evidence that he has lost the popular um, support. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> um, thank you. The uh, 
We've done actually um, quite a few things with regard to um, what Assistant Secretary Fraser discussed in December. Um, she specifically talked about then imposing travel sanctions um, on 38 different individuals, including nine state security officials involved in human rights abuses and anti-democratic activities. Um, we're also the uh, part of the 38 individuals that were sanctioned include at least five adult children of Zimbabwe government officials that are implicated in similar activities. Um, the way that the uh, visa system works, we're able to um, revoke visas uh, for those who search who are applying for a visa to come to the United States. But if a person is in the United States and has had a valid student visa, we um, cannot go and get them and deport them, but we are able to refuse them re-entry if they leave the United States. So every possible um, uh, avenue... <laughs> is being uh, resourced and um, exploited to make sure that, yes, the sons and daughters of those Zimbabwe government officials um, who have committed these atrocities do not benefit from uh, being in the United States and getting an education in the United States um, to the extent that our legal visa system uh, allows. Richard, are you okay? There, there really isn't much more that uh, the United States government can do. I mean, uh, I'm sorry to say that, but that, that, that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, the trade embargo against Zimbabwe uh, is not in the offing because it would uh, hurt um, suffering Zimbabweans. Plus, it would probably be ineffective because it wouldn't be enforced globally. And military intervention is clearly out of the question. So um, this, is, this is as far as I think the U.S. government can go. More questions? Yes, Hello, I'm Francois Sims. Um, I disagree that there is um, not much the U.S. government can do because there seems to be a double standard here um, that um, uh, uh, President Bush in um, one of his speeches, um, he always talks about um, seeing that democracy is um, that everyone um, in the world um, can have a democratic, um, can practice democracy. But um, the same conditions um, in Zimbabwe happened in Iraq, but um, we intervened in Iraq, but we didn't in, in, in Afghanistan, but we didn't intervene. We're not intervening in Zimbabwe. Um, what's the real issue here? And if the United States can't intervene in, in Zimbabwe, in Zimbabwe um, um, where is the African Union and the United Nations on this issue? Well, I, uh, I think you're correct that President Bush strongly believes in, in uh, democracy and um, spreading the opportunity for freedom throughout the world. Um, I, I think in, in Zimbabwe, part of what our uh, policy is with regard to Africa is looking to the Africans themselves to help solve the problems that are part of the continent. Um, uh, as, as Walter mentioned and, and, and others, that the the neighboring countries around Zimbabwe themselves have not spoken up against Robert Mugabe and the regime. Um, we looked to South Africa and President Mbeki, um, the African Union, um, and I'm sorry, the SADC uh, uh, had convened a meeting 
to talk about how to bring some peace between the MDC and the ZANU-PF. Um, they looked to President Mbeki to try to negotiate an agreement between the two groups. We respected that their request that the West stay out of it at this point and let the Africans work on what they were um, uh, in, in, in trying to negotiate something between uh, their immediate neighbors. Um, we're certainly, uh, that obviously didn't yield uh, a great deal of success, unfortunately. Um, but we're certainly working with the African Union uh, on a regular basis and pressing them um, to make sure that they take their, uh, their leadership position uh, seriously uh, throughout the continent because obviously um, they're trying to uh, they're trying to ensure that their authority and their oversight um, is effective but unfortunately right now we don't have um, we don't have um, a significant uh, amount of outspoken African leaders who are themselves criticizing the situation in Zimbabwe. The, the African Union is sending election observers. We're working with the African Union uh, with those election observers. Uh, unfortunately, there's only about 25 at this point. So, um, but we are we are working with them on a regular basis, and including Chairman Kikwete and, and others, to try and um, work together to make sure that something in Zimbabwe changes. Yes, uh, Warren Coates, right in front. Thank you. Warren Coates, uh, do we sometimes put too much emphasis on democratic elections at the expense of rule of law and governance issues? Mm-hmm. Um, the example being uh, the democratic election of Hamas in uh, the we- the West Bank, which we where we insisted on an election and then promptly um, disagreed with the result of the election. Um, well, I I can't comment on on, uh, on Hamas election, <laughs> um, but I can tell you that um, uh, for Zimbabwe. Uh, We've certainly been um, working with every aspect of civil society, strengthening uh, media, um, in in trying to ensure that there is um, that there is a robust voter population and that voters feel comfortable going to the polls, et cetera. As a focus on democracy, I don't. I think in Zimbabwe that is the right focus. Because until there is a government that embraces political and economic, significant political economic reform, that recognizes the humanitarian disaster that they've, that they've come under, that acknowledges that there needs to be a free press, um, clearly no other aspect of society is, is able to flourish, including the private sector. Um, so I, I think in Zimbabwe we're, we are definitely on the right on the right track. 
Uh, since we are in the Hayek auditorium, Hayek distinguished between three types of freedom, uh, economic, um, self-explanatory, and then uh, between civic and political freedoms. In Hong Kong, for example, he found civic freedoms, but not political freedoms. Uh, it was a colony of Great Britain. People couldn't vote, but they did have all sorts of rights and privileges which we enjoy in the West, uh, free press, uh, rule of law, etc. problem with Zimbabwe right now is that not only do you have do you not have elections, free elections, but you also don't have civic freedom and consequently you don't have the right government policies. Part of the reason why I'm skeptical about the Makoni um, candidacy is because he stated explicitly that uh, he believes that ZANU-PF has the right policies that haven't been correctly implemented. Uh, clearly, Zimbabwe needs uh, both uh, free elections, but it also needs the correct policies, and they are not going to come from ZANU-PF. Ma'am. If you can just hang on. I'm Demiaki Mokalieli with the Voice of America here in Washington. I'm just curious, with the elections coming up on Saturday, we do hear of if a new government comes in. But what if a new government doesn't come in, if President Gabi remains in, in, in office? Uh, the U.S. had at some point talked about um, doing a regime change or re-engagement with the government. President Gabi, while giving a speech over the weekend, also talked about how the Look East policy was really bearing fruit. Does the U.S. maybe risk, or in, in the West in, in, in general, risk further being alienated from Zimbabwe and therefore lose influence within that country as Zimbabwe pushes more and more towards the East? Well, I think, I think um, it's, it's, it's likely that, that, um, that Mugabe will either be in a runoff or, or claim victory. Um, our engagement with Zimbabwe will maintain, uh, will, st- will maintain steadfastly on the humanitarian assistance side. So our work with HIV-AIDS patients, um, our work with um, uh, other health um, and humanitarian and food aid uh, will, will stay strong. Um, there, the Zimbabwe look to the east... Um, at this point, I'm not sure how much that has a stronghold, um, but the U.S. and the West engagement with Zimbabwe, um, I think most most folks that are part of the business community or the private sector understand um, the opportunity available to them if there is a government in place that embraces political and economic reform. Um, but right now, our leverage, um, we, we are doing what, as much as we can right now to leverage um, change in, in Zimbabwe. And uh, unfortunately, right now, with the, the way things are looking with the elections, um, it's been a very frustrating <laughs> process. Um, but, I, but I do think that... Um, our increased pressure and, and increased international pressure um, it will come um, if there is not a change uh, in a new government that comes after the election. question is, can you elaborate on what the increased pressure could be? Um, I, I'd rather not because uh, at this point I'm, I don't know what the outcome of the election is going to be. Um, and, and I think that uh, right now we are working to make sure that Zimbabweans are able to vote that their votes are counted correctly, um, and it's the hope that, that um, free and fair elections 
uh, may be able to take place on Saturday. And so we'll work from there. I just have one comment. I mean, just to say that Robert Mugabe may well say that uh, the Look East policy is bearing fruit, but he's shown an enormous talent for lying for so many years. So, I mean, why should anyone believe that, especially when the economy continues to shrink, the fastest shrinking economy in the world? And uh, Eastern investors from the East are not stupid. I mean, they they can see instability and uh, as well as anybody else. Um, and a, and, a, and a wrecked economy. I don't know why we should we should suddenly believe President Mugabe on this. Um, for those of you who are interested in predicting the outcome of the elections, I would urge you to once again go back to the paper where David uh, talks about the reasons why he believed that Mugabe cannot leave power uh, democratically. In other words, he has to be forced out of power. Uh, David believes, again, as a, as a lawyer and a constitutional scholar, that... Um, Mugabe really faces a very uh, a major problem, and that is that he's responsible for ordering uh, murders of about 20,000 people in the Matabele land in the mid-1980s. And uh, if he's voted out of office, if he stops being a president, he will become accountable under international law and may be dragged over to uh, The Hague along with Charles Taylor. So um, he, David, again, believes that uh, this can only end in one way, and that is uh, in the election victory of Robert Mugabe and ZANU-PF. What kind of uh, cooperation and assistance uh, Zimbabwe is getting from Zambia uh, following the Jameson raid? There used to be one country, Rhodesia, and obviously, traditionally, there's some uh, great deal of uh, cooperation and uh, no idea similarity between the two countries. Um, Zambia is, is um, supporting, I'll, I'll use that term um, sort of loosely, they, they are providing some um, food support, um, and they are also in some ways supporting Zimbabwe because the flood of, of, uh, of immigrants that are coming into Zambia, um, although it's taxing the Zambian economy, uh, Mr. Mwanawasa has not spoken up and said anything about it. So um, uh, they, do have a, they do have a role to play, and unfortunately... Um, Zambia is one of the countries that's not speaking up to say anything about the, the plight of the Zimbabweans. But as far as uh, uh, basic foodstuffs, they are they are contributing to that because there's food insecurity now in Zimbabwe. Ashley, over there. So what kind of pressure could be put on the region to force them to do something? The kind of pressure to put on the region? Um Forcing, I mean, forcing sovereign governments <laughs> to do things is obviously a, um, uh, a tricky thing. I think that uh, the SADC region, um, uh, you know, the background is that Mr. Mugabe um, fought with many of those leaders, and he is still the elder statesman of the freedom fight in that, in that region. So Mr. Dos Santos in Angola, uh, I went, visited Angola and, you know, and stood on, on Robert Mugabe Boulevard. You know, I think it was on the corner of that and, and you know, Mount Setung or, or you know, <laughs> um, Bismarck <laughs> was one of the corners. Um, 
yeah, same thing in, in, in Namibia. Um, uh, President Mbeki has, has stepped in and um, made efforts to, uh, for reconciliation. Um, that didn't work. Uh, Zambia has been the, the president of uh, one of the SADC um, organs, brought SADC together, um, tried to have a discussion about Mr. Mugabe and what was going on in Zimbabwe. Um, uh, that didn't work. Um, he was actually humiliated by Mr. Mugabe and has not said a word about the situation since then. So um, for us, we certainly keep bilateral relationships with those countries, and we certainly discuss the situation with them, in, in, the situation in Zimbabwe with them on a very regular basis. Um, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I mean, <laughs> go ahead. Well, I mean, I, it's it's extremely difficult. But I mean, one thing that s- ordinary people, civil society, can do is you know put pr- more pressure. I mean, to me, South Africa is a key in this, and South Africa's response has been nothing short of disgraceful. Uh, and in 2010, South Africa is supposedly going to hold the uh, world, the football soccer World Cup. Well, I mean, why are we rewarding South Africa with this? I mean, there is increasingly, and I've read some commentators in South Africa saying that people shouldn't come to South Africa. This is South Africans. I'm a South African saying this. I, I think it's time for people to to stop rewarding South Africa for I mean you can for a whole host of of, of policies, but specifically on Zimbabwe, I think that we should be boycotting the the, the Soccer World Cup. I mean, it, it's an enormously prestigious thing for the South African government, for the ANC, to have, have won this, and they care about it very deeply, and I think we need to start hurting them on, on things that they care about. Also, I think it's very dangerous to, to always expect the United States to come in and solve all of the world's ills. I mean, it, we are introducing an element of moral hazard here, here where... Uh, when things go wrong, people simply throw their hands in the air and say, well, the Americans are here to solve it, or the Americans will step in to solve it. Well, the fact is that Americans cannot care more about Zimbabwe than Africans do. And so far, we have seen precious little uh, interest. I mean, look around you. Look into uh, today's attendance sheet. Do you see any uh, embassy staff from, uh, from African embassies? I believe there is one or two. There are 48 countries in Africa um, the vast majority of them didn't bother to send uh, send anybody to listen to this forum. Uh, but, I mean, you know, the point is that there just hasn't been much of a concern about uh, the suffering of the of the vast majority of the Zimbabwean people. Lady over there. Hi, this is shifting gears a tiny bit. But I was curious, Ms. Thompson, about your experience with the $30 million investment in HIV-AIDS programming. Um, and what the experience has been of NGOs operating in this environment, which often forces NGOs to um, or, or puts them in, a, in an ethical dilemma whereby to operate in the environment and to have access to the people that need these services, in a way you have to kind of condone, you're, you're kind of condoning the government. So I was just wondering how, how you've dealt with that or how NGOs have dealt with that working on the ground. And also, Mr. Trent, you talk about you know, what to do in a post-Mugabe um, uh, Zimbabwe. And that's what we've been talking about for 20 years. What can NGOs be doing now um, on malaria, HIV, AIDS, given the difficult environment? Um, I, I, I 
did not work specifically with Zimbabwe um, when I worked on HIV-AIDS, but um, the U.S. has maintained its support and actually increased its support on HIV-AIDS assistance. Um, the, the majority of the groups receiving funding, um, the NGOs, or I should say, funding goes to the NGOs, not to the government of Zimbabwe, so that's an important piece. Um, so I mean I, I I would I would look to Richard to talk about possibly the the goings on of the NGOs, but I do know that um, even at this point in time, um, the NGOs have had to back down from providing full amounts of food assistance um, uh, to the people in Zimbabwe because of the because of the threats that that go on on a regular basis. So um, while the HIV/AIDS piece. Um, w- we're working through the NGOs that are still available, et cetera, and trying to make sure that people who have been put on ARVs, obviously it's critical that, they're, that they stay on ARVs. Um, but I, I, I don't want to venture on the NGO experience. I haven't had direct interaction with that. Well, I mean, I, I, it's important to recognize that the faith-based groups and you know, the, the churches and NGOs do provide a, a lifeline to, to many thousands of Zimbabweans and uh, um, what to do is it's a very difficult question and I, I don't know, I don't know I don't have the answers but there are many Zimbabweans um, talented Zimbabweans outside and some brave ones continuing to work there and they need the freedom to to find and develop the right solutions for themselves um, and need support if and when that that happens but certainly for providing food aid which has been so politicized it's very difficult do you continue? on that that may sustain the Mugabe regime or do you pull out completely and thousands of people will die as a result? I, yeah. It's a huge problem and I don't pretend to have an answer to that. But, uh, yeah, and, and rebuilding the health systems is will be phenomenally complicated and difficult job. Uh, but like I said before, I think the, the, what's essential is that, is that groups on the ground, doctors, the private sector can have the freedom to operate and find the right solutions for themselves and develop as they go along the, the solutions, but I, I don't have an answer. Thank you. Well, thank you very much um, to all of you for coming. Please join our speakers upstairs for refreshments, and please help me thank them oh, for today's... Uh, can, I say, can I say one thing? I got it. Sorry. Let me... Um, just before we just before we came over, um, we got an email from David Coltart to his general list, and he, he put in, in football terms, Zimbabwe was... In the Premier League in 1980, since then it has had the same coach, Robert Mugabe, and his assistants, ZANU-PF. In 28 years, Mugabe has taken the Zimbabwean team from the Premier League to the bottom of the fourth social league. Next season, we will not even be able to play football because the players have no boots, balls, or kit. The goalposts have fallen down, and the ground is overgrown. Football team would never keep such a coach. Let's hope Zimbabweans don't either. Thank you very much.